I'm delighted to be with you this morning. After last evening enjoying the best Tex-Mex in North and Central America and even Texas at the original Ninfas on Navigation, the honored guest of Yvonne and Nancy Mendoza. It was a delicious meal. I think a five star and I encourage Mr. Hodges, no, not Mr. Hodges, Mr. Greer, to go scope it out and write a review and see if uh, his evaluation matches ours. At dinner, I was able to confirm with Yvonne and Nancy the story that I'd first heard from Eric back in November when I asked him my first Sunday here, I said, so how was it that you came to this church? And I've told the story that Eric told me several dozen times, and by now I'm thinking, I hope I still got it right, the details. And so I confirmed it last night with Yvonne and Nancy that about 10 years ago, the five of them, the four Mendoza women and Eric, visited 1548 Heights. They opened the door in the back and peered in and saw five people, five, in the front row engaged in worship. Before they could back out, though, the five at worship turned around to see who had opened the door and then stopped worship and raced back to them and welcomed them so completely that they returned and they returned. And it was the Sunday that the church doubled in size but the quantitative addition was nothing compared to the gold standard of quality of character that then became members of this congregation. Nancy Mendoza, the matriarch of this family, raised three girls who have become women of intelligence and courage and compassion. And Nancy makes cakes. I saw pictures of them last night. And so Randy, Burkhalder, when you retire on April 15th, the day before your retirement is a Sunday. I looked it up. It is. It's a Sunday. And I think that you and Rhonda need to commission Nancy to bake a cake, a big cake, a big retirement cake, and have her, she does designs, but have it designed with the Houston Astros in mind and have baseballs and all sorts of things. And we will, we will, okay, that's what we got planned, all right. Well, I'm, this morning I'd like for us to turn our attention to uh, scripture and I'm gonna do something that I advise my students never to do, ever, under any circumstances. And I'm gonna violate my basic principle because none of my students are here to see what a hypocrite I am. And I say, don't put up visuals that will compete with the descriptions that you're trying to make with your words, because your words can't compete with the visuals. But I'm going to try it anyway. And so, David, would you please put before us here, can you see this? I hope you can. It's a little screen that now dawns on me with the picture. It's a Rembrandt. It's a 17th century piece done by Rembrandt, the Dutch artist. Uh, a, a, a painting that was rediscovered in 1974. It was lost to the wider audience, not known as a Rembrandt until 1974 when it was uncovered. And if you can see from where you're at, in the close background is a palm tree, 
and a carriage and two horses in front of the carriage. And if you look closely, you can see a third horse, the tail, the rider is facing the opposite direction of the two in the carriage. And in the center, in the foreground, there's four men of color in the background, but in the foreground, you'll see a Caucasian man. He's white. He looks to be in his early 50s. He has a white beard, very bald. He looks like he's from Indiana or Pennsylvania of Dutch descent. And then there's a man kneeling. The man kneeling is obviously from Africa. And Philip, that's the guy from Pennsylvania, has his hand on the Ethiopian's head. And now, with all due respect for the great Rembrandt, whom I do admire as one of the great artists of all time, I would like to deconstruct the theology of Rembrandt. I'd like to deconstruct Rembrandt's theology with the hopes that we can describe, with the help of Luke, a, a new theology. I'd like to deconstruct it in just three simple strokes. The first stroke is the guy in front of the carriage. Can you see him there? He looks to be holding a book. He's holding a book. And that's the first deconstruction. There were no books. There were scrolls, not books. It's a minor thing, but nevertheless. A second, uh, this is a, a bigger issue for me, uh, and that is, where's the water? Uh, the, Philip has his hand on the man's head. It looks like almost a, he's going to chop him. You know, he's got a chop look on his head with his hand. And, but there's no water. The text will tell us that they were, they're going along, and at the end of Philip's talk, the, the Ethiopian will say, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? They pull the chariot over, and then the text very graphically says they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him, and then they came up out of the water. So there's a lot of water in this text, but it's not in the picture. And finally... I want to get back to Philip of European descent. Isn't that interesting? I guess Rembrandt couldn't help himself. I mean, that's what he had to look at. Model, his male models were, you know, from obviously from Netherlands. And so we have a white European baptizing the African. But in reality, the Africans come into church. They come into the realm of Christ long, long before the word gets to places that I hail from, places like Germany and Norway. That's a minor point, I suppose, but nevertheless, that's our deconstruction of Rembrandt. So please remove Rembrandt's wonderful image and let's try to reconstruct something here, hopefully, that will be worth your while. I'm not going to perform the text as you've seen and heard, not seen, but heard beautifully done first by Ann Jackson and then by Melissa. And then you'll hear Ann again next Sunday perform a particular text. These performances of scriptures, oral interpretation is so powerful. If they, they are, are better than a sermon. A sermon can't do what, what they do in the performance of the text. And I'm not going to perform this text. I'm simply going to read it. But to help with the hearing of the word, I would like for you to pay attention on one of several ways of hearing. The first is that you might be a person who likes to pick up on the characters in a story, and this is indeed a story. And there's a couple of characters here that will be of interest to you. 
You might want to listen for the characters in the description. Or you might be a person who pays special attention to the scene, the background. Uh, that might be of interest to you, and there's much to be of interest here in this particular story, the scene. Or you might be the religious type, the theologian, who likes to pick up on different emphases that might come your way, and there's a lot of theology in this story. You'll be, listen for that. Or if you just want to begin to just have some fun and want to pick up on the action, listen for the action. This is a moving story. A lot of things are happening. So whether it's character or scene or religious emphases or just sheer action, listen to the reading of the text. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, said, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now this is a deserted road. So he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And as he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go up and join the, join the chariot. And so Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the Ethiopian reading Isaiah the prophet and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? of himself or someone else. And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. What will a reconstructed sermon look like, you may be wondering. I'm guessing this church has heard this passage preached a time or two before. Go back in this building 110 years, I'm guessing you've heard this particular passage preached, if you were here all 104 years, a dozen times, five dozen times, maybe a hundred times. And of course, in those sermons, the focus was on the baptism of the eunuch and how it's a model for us and how we're to be baptized. But in addition to the character and the scene and the theology and the action, if you were listening to this text and you picked up on just the first word, 
you might be hoping against hope that the reconstructed sermon will have something to say about angels because it begins by telling us that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. There's a lot of interest today in angels, books and little brooches for you to wear on your lapel, angels everywhere. Hallmark used to have an angel section in the book part of their stores. Angels appear in movies, Patrick Swayze, the late Patrick Swayze in the movie Ghost. But the most famous and my favorite angel from movie land was a guy named Clarence, an angel named Clarence in A Wonderful Life who helps George Bailey see that the world of Bedford Falls would have been a miserable place if it hadn't been for George Bailey. In Acts, the book of Acts, angels are everywhere and we're not imagining things. For those who've spent their time in the world of Luke, Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, you'll recall that in the birth narratives, it's the angels who bring messages to Zacharias and Mary and the shepherds in the first couple chapters. And one angel even has a name. His name is Gabriel. <clears throat> and near the end of Jesus' life, when Jesus is in Gethsemane, Luke tells us that an angel came to comfort him. And in the previous chapter, the one before this one, chapter 7, the story of Stephen, his sermon there is laced with references to angels. In fact, Luke describes Stephen this way. He says, Luke says that Stephen has the face of an angel, as if we know what angels look like. Angels everywhere in Luke. And the Acts is no different than the Gospel. Angel of the Lord appears to open the prison gates to allow Peter out. It'll happen that angels will bring messages to Peter and Cornelius, and the angels will bring the two of them together, and an angel will lead Peter out of jail in Acts 12 and bring a message to Paul in chapter 27. Angels are constantly intervening and stepping in and starting things. They're everywhere. And while we might be a bit excited and surprised by the reference to angels thinking that they're novel and cute, Luke is up to something more, something different. It's like talking about the snow in Michigan on February 24th. We're not in Michigan, I know, but it is February 24th. And up in Michigan, it's snowing, probably. It has been since Halloween, and it will continue till Mother's Day. It's snowing all the time there. And if you are up there and say, whoa, it's snowing, it's February 24th, and it's snowing, people would think you're crazy or a tourist or something because it's always snowing. Nobody notices the snow. It's just background. Like angels are background. Angels are a white background in our story. And in the foreground is a man of color, the one we've come to refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch. Angels set up a drama, a human drama, a drama that in some ways sounds a little bit like our own lives. For starters, this Ethiopian eunuch is a man of remarkable ironies. He's described to us by Luke as a spiritual man. He goes on a pilgrimage from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. If we had our little globes with us now, we could look down and see how far it is from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. It's quite a distance to go by chariot. And he's reading the prophets, and he's eager to understand the meaning, and he's responsive to the message of Jesus. He is a spiritual man. And yet, if I can use this language in church, 
I guess I can. It's in Scripture. He's a castrated man. That's what eunuch means. And according to Deuteronomy 23, no one whose testicles have been crushed or have been cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This condition, his condition, keeps him outside of full participation in the temple. He couldn't fully convert to Judaism because the law prohibited it. He was a religious outcast, a pious outcast, and that's ironic. But there's a deeper irony about this Ethiopian. He's a man of power, and Luke describes it. He's the court treasurer. He's the secretary of finance for the entire nation. He can read a very uncommon skill. And his chariot, he's in a chariot. Don't think of the Ben-Hur type, single driver, smart car, little teeny thing. No, think of a bigger, think of a bigger chariot. He has a driver so that he can read. It's at least two-seater. And then he invites Philip up into it. It's a three-seater. And there's a place to keep the scrolls that he's reading. He's driving the Bentley of, of chariots. It's, it's a chariot that's befitting his status, his position of power. And still, ironically, he's looking for something. Because, obviously, something's missing in his life. It's hard to imagine it, isn't it, for us? In our society, when we think that power and money and prestige are all that we really need, we're given that message every day. Every time we open up our computer screen, every time we watch television, that all you really need is power, money, prestige, and our products will help you achieve those. That's all we want. Listen to the way we sometimes talk. I hope to have my first million by the time I'm 30. What I wouldn't give to drive a chariot like that. Imagine the perks of being the secretary of finance. But power and money and prestige have never satisfied. They've never delivered what we really want, which is love and joy, peace and patience, and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Something's missing in his life. In our society, we elevate those who have money and power and prestige. The Detroit Tigers had a ball player with promise. His name was Marvin Naive. Marvin Naive, N-I-E-V-E-S, all right? He was an outfielder for the Detroit Tigers. And the Tigers, traded him to the Cleveland Indians. This is just a few years ago. Traded him to the Indians, and then the Cleveland Indians returned the next season to play the Tigers. But something tragic had happened to Marvin and his wife. They came back to Detroit to play the Tigers, and the paper reported what I hadn't heard in the offseason was that the naive is had lost their son. They had lost their little boy named Brandon. And it was so moving to me, I cut it out of the paper and I pasted it here so that I would always have it. And here is what the paper said. In a telephone interview Thursday, Navis was asked where he and his wife have found the strength 
to deal with Brandon's death. He said, our faith is keeping us very strong. He said, the Heavenly Father has shown us new ways to deal with the situation. He added a lot of people that we know in and out of baseball have come forward and shown condolences, really caring and praying for us. And all that has given us strength. What that man knew, and what his wife knew, was that what he had with baseball, the money and the power and the prestige, assured him of nothing. And that what he wanted had evidently come from another source. What he needed had come from another source. And the Ethiopian knew that as well. Perhaps he knew what Augustine would later articulate centuries later when Augustine said that within every human being there's a God-shaped void, a God-shaped emptiness that only God can fill. These two ironies, a pious outcast and a man with power, prestige, and money who still has a God-shaped void. Amidst these two ironies, the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, the Old Testament passage that speaks of the coming Messiah, what we call the suffering servant, a passage of hope. There will come a day, Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, and on that same scroll that the eunuch is reading, Isaiah promises, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. To the eunuch who keeps my covenant and chooses what pleases me, I will give them in my house an everlasting name that will not be eliminated. When the Messiah comes, all will have hope. Of whom is he speaking, the eunuch says. And with that, Philip begins to tell him about Jesus. Imagine the hope in the tone of voice when he asked that question. He wanted more, the eunuch did, and he got it. And Philip preached Jesus to him, and it's not hard to imagine what he told him. Starting with this passage, the text says, he wanted no doubt to hear Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No doubt he wanted to hear about the fact that Jesus came with victory over, the, over death. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. And for the eunuch, it would have meant that death was the end of it something his money and power and prestige couldn't stop. But as Marvin Navis and his wife knew, there's something that overcomes even death of one we love. The God-shaped void, Augustine said, enters into us at baptism. The Holy Spirit enters into us at baptism and fills us. It's a great gift. The Holy Spirit works in us and it leaves its mark in us. It's sign of its presence. It's exactly what we've been hoping for and longing for all of our lives. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Hope. What was the, what was the Ethiopian 
eunuch looking for? Maybe he's, he was looking for what we're looking for when our hearts warm to the thought of angels for guidance and protection and meaning for intervention. What was the Ethiopian eunuch looking for? Maybe he was looking for what we're looking for today, something that will calm our anxieties with the drumbeats of culture wars growing louder, the terrifying possibility of a civil war that might await us. What was the eunuch looking for? He was looking for God to fill the emptiness in his life, for God, the God who will give the messianic hope, and he found it. He was baptized, the text tells us. At that baptism, he died, and he rose to a newness of life in Jesus. And that's why he went his way rejoicing, the text says, full of joy. The emptiness was gone. And when you have that, when you have that, there's nothing that can take it away. I've spent a lot of time with you these last four months, and I've enjoyed every minute of it, every minute. I've come to know you. I've dined with you. I've talked with you. I spent a lot of time with the stewards and the search committee. And what I've witnessed in every encounter is the fruit of the Spirit, the patience and the kindness and the joy and the love that's in your heart and in your lives. I've known that there's been difficulties that have laid you low, terrible tragedies that have occurred, and yet I've heard and seen evidence of the Spirit in your lives. We're so fascinated by the angels. They fill our movies and our books and even are on top of our Christmas trees. <laughs> but in Luke, their background, white background, and even they don't bring joy. In Luke and in our lives, if we will believe in them, they're at best messengers to set the stage for the real thing. Because in reality, we too are people of ironies. who long for a world, a world depicted in the Gospel of Luke where God protects and guides and brings meaning and elevates us to our best selves. And that's the sermon this morning. There's only one little caveat. It's maybe when you heard this story, you wondered, so what became of him? What became of this man who went on his way rejoicing? who had been to Jerusalem and is now heading back to Ethiopia. Well, there's a couple of pieces of evidence that we have. It's scant, but I'll tell you what we know. The oldest manuscript, the oldest manuscript, little piece of manuscript that we have of the New Testament is from this very passage, Acts 8, verses 26 to 32. And scholars tell me that it was quickly written several connections or corrections and that it had been folded. Scholars think that it was used for a sermon or at a baptismal service. That's one follow-up, which is so perfect, it seems to me, because this text can go with us everywhere. Because in reality, this black man, this man from Ethiopia, is you and me. He's us. That's what who we are who long for God, filled with our ironies, and then 
have those longings met through Jesus. And the second piece of evidence won't surprise you. And that is tradition has that the Ethiopian returned to Ethiopia and spread the news of what had happened to him on his return from Jerusalem and started what we would call a church, community of other believers. And that church was so deeply rooted that, it's, that it lived on for another two centuries. That's what tradition says. So I don't know. I probably successfully or unsuccessfully deconstructed the theology of Rembrandt, but frankly, you know, who cares? He's a fabulous artist. And I would love to have the original <laughs> baptism of Eunuch, and I'd put it in a prominent place in my home if I owned it. But hopefully, we've reconstructed a theology here that Philip doesn't look like a man of Dutch descent. He probably looked like everybody else from the Middle East. But that the Ethiopian, ironies and all, looks a lot like us. <laughs>